My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Alexis Shotwell and Gary Kinsman. One of today's guests, Gary Kinsman, has written about how we are constantly subjected to systematic social forces that want us to forget the centrality of past struggles by movements and communities to shaping the world of today. The social organization of forgetting, he calls it. This constant erasure of collective struggle must be tackled head-on with what he calls the resistance of remembering, a phrase that points towards many different kinds of efforts to recover that history of struggle which in turn can feed into our collective efforts to struggle for justice and liberation today. One movement that did crucial work in decades past but that is largely forgotten now, one among many, of course, was the collective struggle that resulted when governmental and medical authorities refused to take the actions so urgently needed by those who were infected and at risk in the early years of the AIDS epidemic. To the extent that this struggle is remembered, it is often through the lens of the absolutely crucial work done by the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, or ACT UP, in New York City. Yet as crucial as the organizing in New York was, this was a struggle that happened in important ways in cities big and small across North America, including across Canada. Shotwell and Kinsman are scholars, as well as activists who have been involved in queer, anti-capitalist, and other struggles. The idea to do a major research project on histories of AIDS-related organizing in the Canadian context was Shotwell's. She broached the idea with Kinsman, who was himself active in the AIDS movement in that era, and the AIDS Activist History Project was born. In the last few years, they've done oral history interviews with many activists who were involved in the AIDS movement in the 1980s and 1990s in cities across the country, and they've collected important archival documents and other material as well. Their goal is not to produce the usual sort of output that you might expect from an academic research project, a definitive scholarly book, for instance, but rather to use a range of online and in-person approaches to collectively engage in that resistance of remembering with people not just within, but far beyond the academy. Shotwell and Kinsman speak with me about the AIDS Activist History Project, about the important work done by the AIDS movement in the Canadian context, and about what we can learn from this important piece of history to inform the many struggles that we face today. We spoke by Skype to phone. My name is Gary Kinsman, and I'm a retired university professor from Laurentian University. I've been a longtime queer and AIDS and anti-capitalist activist, and Alexis got me roped into this AIDS activist history project, and we've been having fun doing interviews all across the country in various places for the last couple of years. And I'm Alexis Shotwell. I'm still a university professor at Carleton University and uh, anti-capitalist, queer media activist. And we started doing this project exactly because I roped Gary into it because I knew that he had been involved with AIDS activism. And I gradually came to learn the history of all the things that people did 
to transform the way that AIDS and the way that healthcare in the Canadian context was happening wasn't documented. AIDS organizing emerges in the early 1980s in the Canadian context. I've been involved in the gay movement prior to that, so that obviously put me at the epicenter of responses in Toronto, where I was living at the time, to the AIDS crisis as it emerged. For the first whole period, governments and the medical profession did nothing. There was the organization of systematic discrimination and discrimination against people living with AIDS and HIV. I was one of the first three employees of the AIDS Committee of Toronto in 1983, and that was an organization that was set up because no one else was doing anything to provide support and education and to do a bit of work against discrimination. So that's the first moment of organizing in various centers across the Canadian state, which leads to the generation of what at that point in time would have been described as community-based AIDS organizations, which later on, as they get state funding and begin to get managed and regulated by state agencies, come to be called AIDS service organizations. So that's the first moment of organizing that takes place. And I was largely involved in that, first of all, as an employee of the AIDS Committee of Toronto. And then because I was working with two publications, more as a sort of journalistic form of analysis of what was going on in terms of AIDS politics. And what happens a little bit later than that, in the mid-80s and a little bit later, and it occurs differently in different centers, is that there's ruptures or tensions between people living with AIDS and HIV who want their needs and concerns to survive and to live, to be taken into account, versus the AIDS service organizations that are being paid to do prevention education and are not being paid to do treatment advocacy or to focus on the survival of people living with AIDS and HIV. Then the first PWA group that emerges in the Canadian context is the PWA Coalition in Vancouver, which is also the first group that takes up treatment activism. And a little bit later on, with the impetus of AIDS activist groups in the United States, like the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power and their focus on how people could live and survive. I mean, the basic slogan was silence equals death and action equals life. So taking action was actually a way of extending people's lives. And that began to have some impacts in the Canadian context as well. AIDS Action Now was formed in late 87, early 88 in Toronto, and I was one of the people who was brought in to AIDS Action Now fairly early on as someone who had lots of connections and experience organizing in the gay men's community. And AIDS Action Now was one of those treatment-based AIDS activist groups that fought for people's survival and access to treatments and funding for treatment. But other groups emerged in other places across the country. So that at least gives you a bit of a sense of some of the context. So there's different waves of AIDS organizing and AIDS activism, and we are in particular in the AIDS Activist History Project focusing on the sort of ruptures between people living with AIDS and the AIDS service organizations and this profound form of AIDS activism that is largely based around treatments, but not only around treatments that emerges in the very late 80s and that lasts into the early 1990s. This wave of Organizing collectively to create the conditions for people to live and have flourishing, dignified lives with HIV and AIDS. A lot of it, as Gary mentioned, was focused on treatment. But one of the things that's been really amazing is to look at the ways that these activists recognized that that possibility of having a good life also required people to really think about complex relationships with class and racialization and immigration status. So a lot of people did a lot of things that we now talk about as intersectional organizing or as organizing that takes a really synthetic view of all the social relations that are creating good lives for some people and really hard lives for other people. 
and they accomplished just amazing things in these years. So the PWA coalition, that moment, really emerges from the early people living with AIDS and HIV groups that often started off as subgroupings within the AIDS service organizations. So the first groupings are actually people who come together to provide support for themselves as people living with AIDS and HIV, and in that context begin to realize that their needs and concerns aren't being adequately addressed within the mainstream aid service organizations that existed at that point in time. So it's it's largely people who know each other already because they're drawn together in aid support groups within those aid service organizations, and they begin to realize that those groups aren't really addressing their needs and begin to organize outside of them and, in many cases, form their own independent or autonomous PWA coalitions. At that point in time, there's not really much that exists in terms of treatments for people surviving longer for people being able to have better quality lives. But by the late 1980s, especially in the States, there's increasing evidence that there are various different treatments that can't get rid of HIV infection, but can actually prevent the opportunistic infections from killing people. So people have to understand that when you have AIDS, your immune system gets severely compromised and that your body can no longer fight off the types of opportunistic infections that it could if it was healthy. So, for instance, in many places across North America, in the late 80s, the major cause of death for people living with AIDS was pneumocystiscarine pneumonia. And there was prophylaxis treatments that could prevent that from killing people, and that was pioneered by some of the treatment-based AIDS activist groups in the States and their alliances with primary care physicians, and even some community-based research initiatives around AIDS and HIV. Those treatments were actually denied to people in the Canadian context. So that's one of the first issues, for instance, that AIDS Action Now in Toronto organized around in a really vibrant way is against this denial of aerosolized pentamidine, which could actually prevent people from getting pneumocystis carinii pneumonia. That was denied to them by the government, by the pharmaceutical corporations, and people began to both protest against the limitations of the clinical trials that were going on around aerosolized pentamidine, but also begin to smuggle aerosolized pentamidine into the Canadian context from Buffalo so that more people are actually being able to use it. Clinics were organized under medical supervision, and people were beginning to feel like they could survive. Well, there's many other types of opportunistic infections, other forms of treatments that people were being denied that AIDS activists also fought for access to during this period of time. In terms of AIDS Action Now, which I was involved in, there were a number of different component groups that came together to form it. People living with AIDS and HIV came together with some activists coming out of the gay liberation movement like myself who were not HIV positive, and also there were primary care physicians involved in forming AIDS Action Now initially. So the groups emerge in different ways in different centers, and that's part of what we're trying to track out in the AIDS Activist History Project. So from what I understand about AIDS organizing in that era, one of the really key things about it was the way that it combined these really nuts and bolts level survival oriented goals with a commitment to dramatic protest and to direct action. Talk a little bit about that. One of the things we've heard that I think really is pretty neat is one of the core organizers, George Smith had this catchphrase that people have talked to us about. He's dead. He's not around to tell us about this. And he was quite amazing. And one of the things that he apparently said a lot is that we need to have 
documents and demonstrations. So there was this really interesting strategic approach that recognized that people who were doing AIDS activist work had much better understanding about what people living with HIV needed than any government official did. They really had a sharp, clear analysis. And so they were best positioned to write policy papers, to recommend how governments should be approaching things, how healthcare providers should be approaching things. And they made a commitment to write those things up and make them available. But at the same time, if you're just producing documents, they recognize there's no real motivation for politicians to do very much. So you need to have a demonstration that you have power to make things change. And so they were always doing both these kind of incredibly thorough, sharp, clear, accurate recommendations about policy and practice, and then pairing that with really in-your-face, creative, amazing demonstrations. There were lots of things that happened that were on the level of symbol, but also direct action. So occupying offices of pharmaceutical companies, having really enormous demonstrations. We just got back from launching the first wave of the interviews that we've done in Montreal. And this was a place where there was a international AIDS conference that a whole consortium of variously situated AIDS activists stormed the opening session, took over the stage and opened the conference on behalf of people living with HIV and AIDS, which had never been done before. So that was a real example of direct action, you know, getting the goods. That if you want people to have a voice in the decisions that are affecting their lives, one way to do that is to have a collective organization that has a lot of people power. And so the people that we've been talking with did all of these things, and they did them not just in big places like Toronto, but I'm talking to you today from Halifax, where there isn't a history of really, you know, mass mobilization or mass demonstrations. But AIDS activists did take the streets here. They did have direct interventions in decision making. So it was really something that characterized the movement, recognizing that it was important to have both that really sharp analysis and then the collective power to force politicians or to give politicians the opportunity to do the right thing. One of the most successful things that AIDS Action Now did, and many groups across the country did very successful actions as well, was a burning of an effigy of the then health minister, Jake Epp, in 1988. We do know that a couple of weeks after that, Brian Mulroney, who was then prime minister, dragged Jake Epp into his office and said, why are people so pissed off with you in Toronto that they're burning an effigy of you in the city streets? So that actually led to repercussions in terms of shifts and changes within AIDS policy. Uh, just one other comment on George Smith's notion of documents and demonstrations. It was also through the demonstrations, through direct action, that more of what was going on became visible to people so that you actually had the basis for being able to produce a better analysis in terms of the documents. So there was also sort of a reflexive or maybe dialectical relationship between the demonstrations and the direct action and the development of analysis and documents. Give listeners a sense of the victories and accomplishments of the AIDS movement in those years. Alexis was just mentioning the seizure and taking over the opening session of the International AIDS Conference in 89 in Montreal. Well, that actually managed to transform the character of those conferences. Previously, they'd basically been based on the silencing and the marginalization and exclusion of people living with AIDS and HIV and of AIDS activists. And after that, the character of those conferences was changed. So people living with AIDS and HIV now had to be involved in all of the committees that were making decisions about their lives. That began to substantially change the situation. Other things that are really important in terms of what AIDS activists accomplished was in terms of getting people access to treatment. The emergency drug release program of the federal government was forced to actually be able to be used to access various different drugs and treatments. 
in many ways, those of us involved in that wave of AIDS activism really knew that direct action worked because it actually extended the capacities of people to live in terms of getting access to drugs and treatments. But there's another problem that, of course, emerges, which is, as Alexis mentioned, these drugs and treatments were really, really expensive. How are people actually going to afford them? In AIDS Action Now in Toronto and across Ontario fought for the Trillium drug funding program that was eventually put in place in the very dying days of the Bob Ray government. That was a campaign that involved, you know, disrupting NDP meetings, occupying the health minister's office, and threatening to burn an effigy of Bob Ray in the streets. But eventually what it meant was a funding program for people in catastrophic situations was adopted that's helped not just people living with AIDS and HIV, but all sorts of other people involved in catastrophic health situations as well. Similarly, the ACT UP group in Montreal, along with a person living with AIDS and HIV group there, waged a three-year campaign to get funding for treatments also adopted in the province of Quebec. So those are some of the achievements, but really it's important to point out that AIDS activists during this period of time changed the social response to AIDS. They created the conditions for people to be able to live longer. They really did show that direct action can actually play a major part in transforming the world, and that's something that we're trying to recover and to remember actively and in an embodied way in the AIDS Activist History Project. One of the things that I've been struck by that I really take a lot of heart from and inspiration from is also the way that the successes and failures of our work produce the conditions of struggle that we next have to confront. So things like in Ontario, the government was actively considering quarantining people who were HIV positive. In British Columbia, they actually passed legislation to quarantine people in former leper colonies. And it was AIDS activists that made that impossible, that in Ontario, the legislation didn't pass. In BC, they never practiced the legislation. But then one of the things that happened after that in response to that is that considerations of how HIV should be treated were folded into criminal situation rather than a public health situation. AIDS activists succeeded in making AIDS not be the kind of contagious thing that you could quarantine people for against their will in camp and became a matter for criminal prosecution. And now, of course, what AIDS activists are continuing to struggle with is the fact that Canada is one of the world leaders in the unjust criminalization of people who are living with HIV. So the conditions that we won things then mean that now we have to keep struggling around these things, right? Now it's unacceptable that people are being put in prison simply for having sex while positive. And we need to really fight that, and AIDS activists are continuing to fight that. So doing this project really has reminded me about the ongoingness of struggle and the way that we can't be nostalgic about the history that we need to recover, but instead we need to take inspiration from the ways that it shows us all the things that there still are to do. Tell me about the research project, about the AIDS Activist History Project. There's been a real explosion of attention to the history of AIDS, and this is very, very heartening. It's wonderful. One thing that has happened in relation to that, because of the incredible work that ACT UP New York did, is that New York sometimes gets figured as the only place where AIDS activism was really vibrant. So we looked at that and we felt like the work they did was amazing. And it did not just happen in the United States. It did not just happen in New York City. And there are different things that were really important and that people struggled over in the Canadian context and in the global context. So I think when we started doing this, we had a hint of the fact that it was vital to really remember all the different places where this kind of work was done. In some of the places that we've gone and talked to people, no one remembers that there was a direct action AIDS group there. No one remembers the amazing things that those people did. 
And so no one sees the way that our lives now are a product of the struggle that they did then. So I think that having a research project that is not so centralized on this kind of particular center means that we can attend to all the work that people did in smaller places in ways that were sometimes very small groups accomplishing really a lot, often in ways that were not recognizable as a sort of big, major activist organization. So we started doing it and we thought, okay, we're going to start with just the things that we know happened in these different cities. So we really started with places where there were active people living with HIV and AIDS groups, PWA groups, and also groups that self-identified as activist groups, so ACT UP and AIDS Action Now in the Canadian context mostly. And then we've kind of moved out from there. So we start with a kind of hub of a collective organization, and then we begin to look at the different things that they worked with. So for example, in Halifax, there was a PWA coalition, there was an ACT UP group, And there was also a really active black outreach project that was facilitated by the PWA coalition, but that really focused on the African-Canadian community in Nova Scotia. So we've been able to trace our way through some of those connections. I think one of the things that I love about the project is that we focus on not telling an authoritative story of everything that happened, but instead really centering the voices of people who did things, telling us what they did in their own words, how they did it. And that means that we've decided to not produce a standard academic thing. Like we're not writing a book about the history of AIDS activism in Canada. Instead, we do these interviews with people, usually in their homes. We transcribe them. We check the transcripts. We send them back to the people so they can approve them. And we post the whole transcript and a little short video clip of almost everyone on a website so that anyone who wants to look at the history and access the things that happened has all these resources available there. We're trying not to do an awful lot on the history of AIDS service organizations because they're still around and they should have funding and some of them have already engaged in their own historical projects. The historical continuation of the PWA Coalition in Vancouver is the Positive Living Society. And we are making some connections with them around some of the historical work that they've done, including really interesting moments of tension between the people living with AIDS and HIV who came out of the gay community and people who came out of the downtown east side in terms of much more racialized people and also people who were involved with drug use in a much more profound way. So we're trying to recover various histories. We've also provided assistance to some of the various different gay archives across the country, both in Toronto and in Montreal so far, in terms of trying to make more systematic their holdings in relationship to AIDS activism. So there's many things that we're trying to do. We also want to remind people that There's a very, very rich tradition of activism in many different social movement contexts and in the labor movement in what is now called Canada, but also that what is often forgotten about is this direct action-based wave of AIDS activism that actually achieved many of the gains that people take for granted. It wasn't just simply governments and the medical profession handing these things to people. People had to actually fight for them. And AIDS activists made a real difference in terms of allowing people to live longer and to have more control over their lives. So as people who are yourselves not only scholars, but also committed activists in a variety of movements, what lessons do you take from this history that you think is relevant to the struggles faced by movements today? The thing that is always so moving about the history of social movement struggle is this insight that the world did not have to be the way that it was, 
And the ways that it's been made better has been by people getting together and working on it. So I feel tremendously affirmed by this project in recognizing that it is worth doing this work because it's the only way that things change. The other thing that I think is really amazing about the history of AIDS activism and that I continue to learn from is what it means to center the idea of flourishing and of living with dignity in the kind of work that we do and how effective that is at pushing back against the idea that capitalism is inevitable and that people's lives are worth less than money. So when we look at struggles today around global warming and climate change, around pipelines, around poverty, I think that I see people continuing to really recognize that we do not have to prioritize money over life and living well. We can actually transform what we think is most important in this society. And I feel like although AIDS activism was focused on this one particular thing that got framed as though it was just a health matter, what I've learned from talking to these people is that it was never just a health matter. It was a question of how do we want the world to be? What kind of world do we want to live in? And what are we going to do to change it? The most important thing for me coming out of that period of time in terms of being an AIDS activist was a real knowledge, a real embodied knowing that direct action can actually work. And I hope that our project can actually communicate that to broader groups of people because direct action politics can still be quite relevant to people operating in many, many different contexts and many different types of movements and struggles. I also think it's really important to recognize that when you deal with AIDS activism, and Alexis was just getting at this, you're actually dealing with how AIDS is sort of a condensation of social relations. You can't adequately address AIDS without dealing with class, without dealing with gender, obviously without dealing with sexuality, with dealing about ability, with dealing with a whole series of questions. And it seems to me that's something also important to communicate, that even though we might start from particular needs and concerns, we have to place them in a much broader social context and see how all of the different social relations that surround us are all bound up together in particular struggles. And I guess the final thing that I hope our project helps to communicate to people is that there are always systematic social forces that want us to forget about the various forms of activism that have taken place in our societies in the historical past that help to shape the presence that we find ourselves in. And it's really important for us to always be conscious of that systematic social organization of forgetting, as I often describe it, and to fight against that. And I hope that our project, through what I describe as the resistance of remembering, because I think that's a large part of what we're trying to do, that resistance of remembering can be a really successful antidote against the social organization of forgetting. And that resistance of remembering is also part of our organizing and our resistance in the historical present that we face right now. So I'm hoping that the AIDS Activist History Project will be very, very useful to activists trying to grapple with what to do in the historical present and realizing that direct action is still very relevant and that together we can collectively act to change the world. You have been listening to my interview with Alexis Shotwell and Gary Kinsman. They have been talking about the AIDS Activist History Project. To learn more about it, go to AIDSActivistHistory.ca. That's AIDSActivistHistory.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Is